32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. My name is Andrea. And this is... Oh, nearly, nearly. I think that was it. Uh, We usually take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. But that was BC. These days, we look at issues or themes in a rapidly changing pandemic-impacted country and give them a global context. This episode, we're talking about the impact of the pandemic and lockdown on the beauty industry and on women's beauty standards. We have an amazing guest coming up. Has the lockdown changed the way we see ourselves and each other? And what brought us here and what will get us the fuck out of it, Andrea? Woo! Thanks a bajillion to all of our brilliant Patreon supporters. Uh, you get the exclusive Patreon-only Sunday Soothe every Sunday for chilling like villains. Um, also today, we are launching, this is Friday, our second treasure hunt and what's we going on with lied. that, Andrea? We kind of lied on social media and said we were going to do it uh, on Tuesday, but we didn't. Surprise! It just keeps it so exciting. So today is actually going to be launched. So stand by. We're very excited for our treasure hunt. It was so much fun uh, watching the content come in from other people um, who were doing the treasure hunt. And the feedback we had from everyone was so good of how much fun they had. And obviously we were all um, a bit more locked up during lockdown at that stage but it is a lovely opportunity to get out there see the world make it happen be joyful and what's the prize this time andrea the prize this week is a print from atelier macer from one of the artists in there uh tbc and also uh an lp is that what they're called these days yeah a record yeah a record <laughs> from Mango and Mathman. It's the the wax of tunes. How are you feeling? (laughs) Uh, I am very discombobulated, but also relieved that, yes, it's done. The move is over. My friend texted me last week and she's like, oh my God, it really felt like you were really struggling in last week's podcast to get through life. And I was like, yeah, but... It's all done. My stuff is all over the country. And uh, yeah, I'm living in about four houses at the moment. But on a serious note, it was very stressful. But the whole time I was like, yeah, this is stressful. But like, there's way more stresses that we all know, blah, 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 privilege, etc. But what I kept thinking about how hard I was finding this whole thing and not knowing where I was going and not having a base and not having a home and thinking about back to watching Rosie with Sarah Green and how if I had a family that I had to like live out of a car and try to find somewhere to stay every night, how much fucking stress that is. And obviously I was watching the film was really powerful, but then just getting a taster of actually experiencing it, not even in any way close to what the actuality of what is being experienced by so many people. It just is so bananas that this is real life and happening in our country. Mm, indeed. Um, and we will, of course, be keeping track of uh, housing in Ireland Um waiting for these rents to drop substantially, waiting to see how uh, very kind of unknowns of the economy uh, progresses. And of course, um, the upcoming 
uh, which unpopular government, which looks like it will be in place uh, shortly. Um, How am I feeling? I'm actually feeling really great. Um, I uh, obviously the weather is a pox and it kind of brings home how reliant we are um, on sun and warmth to actually be outside. I think like a lot of people, even though the lockdown is easing, I'm kind of maintaining uh, what was kind of going on, just socializing outside, uh, keeping my contacts um, very to a minimum. Um, I got to see my parents this week for the first time in months, which was really, really great. And I just think generally, like, you know, kind of almost philosophically, I suppose, looking at all of the upheaval in the world at the moment, um, economic, uh, sociocultural, um, existential, that I've kind of come to a conclusion that we are kind of going towards a, a massive period of radical change uh, akin to the six, the 1960s or something, um, and that we're going to enter into a new phase of tearing down um, toxic structures and growing into a period of freedom and peace and love. That's so we're what I think. The summer of love 2021 is on the way. The roaring 20s are coming. Okay, let's go to the state of the nation. Obviously, uh, bajillion things happening uh, right now. We're going to leave government formation to one side until uh, there's more clarity on that. Uh, this week in the Dáil, however, was... Um, taken over I suppose in some respects by uh, Eamon Ryan using uh, the N-word in a kind of a speech where he was trying to highlight uh, racism in Ireland and this kind of gave rise to a lot of debate uh, mostly um, from within the Green Party themselves and and, uh, a lot of people using the opportunity to um, kind of slam Eamon Ryan uh, which is all related to uh, the challenge for leadership in there and the leadership contest between himself and uh, Catherine Martin. Um, and I guess that those the reactions were very predictable in an Irish context in that people are kind of missing the point. Um, and I suppose for me, it kind of comes down to the fact that this, uh, the, def- the defenders of Eamon Ryan um, online uh, and in the media mostly uh, journalists, other politicians, media commentators themselves, you know, being at pains to say that Eamon Ryan uh, isn't racist. You know, the question isn't about whether Eamon Ryan is racist. Uh, racism is not an event or an incident. Uh, it's a structure. I suppose the question is really about uh, how is Eamon Ryan um, so ignorant and naive with regards to race that he thought that even in a quote unquote well-meaning manner to be highlighting racism, to use the N-word was an acceptable thing? Um, that's not about his own personal racism. It's about a broader, uh, the broader discourse in Ireland that we're so kind of underdeveloped in terms of our thinking um, that a white uh, politician can stand up and say that even when he's trying to make a broader anti-racist point. And then the other aspect of that is what does that say about his uh, naivety 
um, with regards to uh, his capacity as a leader and as authority, an authority in uh, the party. So that's really, it was very frustrating kind of seeing the, this kind of commentary emerge from it. Um, some people in the Green Party trying to take advantage of it to, as a point scoring thing around leadership and then other people saying, but Eamon Ryan isn't racist. Eamon Ryan isn't racist. It's like, look, guys, Ireland is racist. We grow up in a racist context and that gives rise to uh, incidents of this nature. Um, so to kind of condense it and trivialise it uh, around an incident is is, is ridiculous. Um, and go back and listen to our podcast last week on how Ireland is racist and uh, how we can do the anti-racist work. Um, another Twitter storm this week will be coming to you at a later time. This is around J.K. Rowling's uh, thoughts um, on um, trans people and this intersection with a very weird uh, British white feminism that seems to kind of not recognise its own colonial impulses in terms of claiming space and bodies and also a manufactured debate that has occurred around uh, trans issues and so-called turfism. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot because of how uh, lesbians are kind of weaponized within this uh, quote-unquote debate, manufactured debate, uh, weaponized against trans people. For the most part, I just wish you know, um, straight people would stop leapfrogging over heterosexuality and actually address the real thing that they're talking about, which is, of course, um, male violence, uh, which doesn't really have anything to do with trans people at all. So we're going to be coming back to that uh, in a nuanced way that actually examines the issue beyond the roots of this current wave of um, transphobic thinking, which, of course, has roots in... uh, 70s kind of feminist splits, but more so um, it's more contemporary realisation which emerged from uh, a confluence of North Carolina, white British feminism and gender segregation in the UK and uh, loads of other random interference online about that is kind of about splitting um, quote unquote left uh, thinking in order to create chaos. So I think when people are articulating uh, these points of view, what they're not interrogating is why they're having this conversation and how the debate has been manufactured. Well, I do think that it's really taken off in the UK and specifically, not specifically, but more so, like we're really quite lucky in Ireland that we're not being faced with these debates yeah, I think there's loads of reasons. I mean, I'm, I've, you know, I was talking to you uh, during the week, Andrew, about that I'm writing an essay on this at the moment that has kind of been bubbling for a long time. It's impossible to have these conversations on Twitter, of course, because, you know, I think we should all reflect on the fact that it was maybe a mistake to reduce uh, broad social discourse to a few people with internet access and 240 characters. Uh, that has turned out to not be the greatest idea. Um, but I guess with regards to how turfism has become very very centralized in British feminism has loads of, um, you know, there's loads of things feeding into that. There is a refusal to acknowledge the role of colonialism, how that has been, continues to be internalized um, in, in terms of, you know, a territorial claim. Uh, over other people existing in society. I think there's a very particular um, contextual uh environment with regards to um, gender in Britain. Um, 
the the segregation um, of of you know gender segregation in, edu- in education um, in single sex spaces. Um, there's a much more curious uh, landscape uh, in in Britain around that than maybe other countries have. Uh, I think that there. I mean, it is mostly a, a white uh, British feminist um, debate. Uh, again, I hate using that word. Um, and I think, again, there's very little interrogation uh, with regards to how that emerges. You know, why are people, certain people talking in this way? I think that the um, conversation around it, because it's been mostly online focused, has been completely corrupted. Uh, it's very difficult to have um, a logical um, clear conversation on it because of how um, online discourse is, is so toxic. And um, I think as well that, you know, there is a there is a diversion here. I completely understand um, the pain that a lot of women feel around, um, you know, safety uh, and countering male violence. I think that there is a delusion uh, in, in, in focusing that argument around safety uh, with regards to trans people because, you know, male violence is the issue. You know, if there are concerns about um, single sex spaces, for example, and men entering those spaces, um, again, this comes back to uh, an inability to actually focus on what on what the real issue is regarding male violence. It's kind of ridiculous and very, very sad and troubling that we have a situation in lockdown, for example, where we're seeing violence against women in the home rocketing. Yet uh, the broader uh, discourse in British feminism seems to continuously focus on uh, what is, in my opinion, largely a, a red herring. I have a lot, a lot of thoughts on this, having gone to North Carolina myself to discuss people who were, you know, working in and around that massive fight a few years ago around the bathroom bill, uh, which is where the contemporary discourse emerged from. Um, I think, you know, in Ireland, we have a very different uh, context around gender, also a very troubling one. Um, We've made more progress with regards to the Gender Recognition Act uh, and you know, I, I, I just feel that there is, you know, with regard to the lesbian uh, aspect of it, very culturally different in Britain. Um, and, and there's just an awful lot of myths. And I really resent um, straight women in particular talking about lesbian rights, straight men as well, talking about lesbian rights and lesbian erasure and lesbian um, voices in this um, because straight people... Uh, Speaking on behalf of lesbians as some kind of homogenous group is obviously ridiculous and ironically compounds the very erasure that they're talking about. So we are going to come back to that in a thoughtful way, um, hopefully. Uh, What else has been happening um, in England this week, Andrea? Much better news all around, really. Uh, Nigel Farage has stepped down in quotation marks, from LBC um, for comparing the Black Lives Matter protest to the Taliban. And Carol Kalwalader tweeted this 
last night just being like, so it seems you, there is actually too racist for LBC. Because <laughs> they are not um, usually the most balanced and sound media company that is going. So yeah, Nigel Farage is toast. And you would hope to see that this is an ongoing trend that will continue on of... Uh, uh, assholes being told to assholes. fuck off. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I was trying to be politically correct there. Um, but yeah, basically assholes uh, who spew bile and hate get in the boat. Uh, then also, um, we've also seen loads of results of the protests coming through that just proves that like, there's been so much discourse about how you protest and um, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it and that it shouldn't be violent and all that kind of conversations that have been happening. But then you see the results that have come through where the officers were arrested um, in George Floyd's case. You also have uh, Breonna Taylor's case being reopened. Um, so, and these were things that were that were not happening. You have Minneapolis City Council expressing the desire to disband the police department, which is absolutely huge. Um, and... I and also the reallocation of NYPD funds by Mayor de Blasio in New York and the transfer of LAPD funds to youth jobs, health initiatives and peace centres. And that opens up the conversation about the jo- role of the police and where the police come from. And i uh, reading up on, I suppose, why uh, the, the backlash against uh, police departments and how we expect so much from police that we want them to be a social service. Like if you call a police to your door for domestic violence you're getting somebody who is trained in one way and not in maybe a way of psychology and social services that is required you have uh, jobs being created for youth that is probably uh, as opposed to just policing uh, the youth maybe get creating jobs and things for them to do health initiatives that make uh, have a healthier population and peace centres and having just diversifying the role and it's been really interesting um, and again in a position of privilege where I've never had to read up on that but um, other things like the Denver PD are banning chokeholds so it really is a very positive uh, like empowering to see these results coming out as, um, as a result of the protests and the Black Lives Matter. I'm also very much here for what's happening in Seattle with regards to their creation of that uh, little autonomous uh, no-cop zone that they have. Um, you know, I think a lot of this stuff, um, obviously racism is so embedded in, in America and it's the uh, untreated malady that's central to their society. Um, but I think that we're seeing um, loads of really radical things happening and, you know, even the, this call to actually defund the police being heard in some jurisdictions is so huge. You know, the fact that this stuff is happening now is so huge. And so many things uh, of, of this in a very short window uh, do come back to um, the crash, I suppose, and the um, nothing left to lose aspect that a lot of younger people have. Um, and... I do think that maybe we're going to see a reappearance of uh, what we're kind of burgeoning and then uh, petering off movements like Occupy and things like that. I think that that's um, kind of coming back. And you're, I suppose in uh, across Europe then, um, you know, looking at these statues of um, 
racist colonialists uh, being pulled down and uh, that that's just such a you know a really positive positive move move as well in terms of no longer holding up um, the iconography of white supremacy and cruelty um, be that in Belgium in Ireland in Britain um, and around Europe so I think that we're you know, we're seeing so much flux right now and a lot of it is really powerful, really important. And the conversations that emerging that are emerging from it uh, are going to bring us to a new era, I think. Um, so, yeah. Now, you do have some Carvery news, which I know is a subject dear to your heart, as it is to mine. Oh, my God. Two bad. Well, there's one piece of bad news, food related and one good. Well, I don't know if it's good or bad. Putting moral issues on food, take it away. But... There's no more buffet breakfast in hotels. That is a big devastation to my life. Yeah. Like there's nothing better than a buffet. And I really am very sad. And I hope something that actually we might look at is all the stuff that's coming about because of Corona and that we'll get so used to it being the norm and then not putting it back like buffet breakfast. Will they ever come back? Even when we, if we do get a vaccine and there is like, a safer environment for us to pick our pastries. Will this, will we revert to the thing and correct things that we are maybe are a big step for us right now? I know Carvery or Buffet Breakfast is not the one, but like we're putting loads of things in place. And if you look at like air uh, travel, when we had the hundred milliliters that was put in place um, and was never taken away and it, like that 100 milliliters is such um, this random number. It kind of mm. doesn't mean anything anymore. And we have never looked back at it. So I hope that we do look back on some things. But separately to that is that uh, the conversation about pubs opening and that only uh, pubs that serve food can open. And there's been um, a conversation about what is food? Like it's not crisps and peanuts. And you've had Grogan's coming out with these beautiful menus of a cheese toasty um, with three different options. Um, but then I suppose the kickback to that is a carvery lunch is not a vaccine. And like, just because you're eating uh, a roast beef and gravy delicious does not mean that that's going to stop you uh, catching Corona. Yeah, it's interesting to see a lot of the pubs, um, you know, pivot, even though that word is bad for this podcast. I'm using it. Um, but we like, we're restaurants. It kind of reminds me of, you know, in Bugs Bunny, where Bugs Bunny dresses up as a woman to avoid Elmer Fudd. And he's like, yeah. I'm not a rabbit. Look at me. I'm a beautiful, you know. Um, you know what it reminds me of? Do you remember when you used to go to nightclubs? And you used to have to get sausage and chips or curry yeah. to justify them being open. You'd be like, I'm in the middle of dancing. The last thing I want is a sausage and chips, you absolute lunatic. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot lot of uh, interesting loopholes um, loopholes exploited. Very much actually just to change tack here, like Leo Vradker saying in the doll when one of the Healy Rays um, tackled him about like drinking in public spaces and Leo was saying, well, you know, technically it's not actually illegal to drink in a public space and people went wild for approximately seven seconds. Like that time Ireland accidentally legalised all drugs for a day or remember that or ecstasy or something. Legalised jokes. Legalised jokes for a day, yeah. Um, but the problem is with that, while the Taoiseach is correct in that there is not a national uh, piece of legislation that bans drinking in public spaces, so many uh, 
councils, city councils, county councils have introduced over the years bylaws that do in fact ban um, drinking in public spaces. In Dublin City Council, for example, those were bylaws, uh, I think they were from the Local Government Act in 2001, but then these uh, particular bylaws were introduced late 2008 um, to ban drinking in, in public places. Now, obviously, uh, there, there are reasons for that, but I think we can all agree as public space takes on a new meaning in lockdown and it has become a much uh, more, re- more kind of used uh, space, be that parks or roads, streets outside people's houses to socialise. And that's obviously going to continue um, that we should start now uh, asking um, our councillors to repeal those laws and uh, allow us to, um, like mature adults, uh, to be able to have a drink of alcohol on a, on a path. Bag on the lawn. <laughs> Bag of cans on the, on the lawn, on the street. Why not? Um, uh, you know, when you respect people, uh, they tend to respect you back and we need to have a mature conversation about it and stop commodifying um, space in a way that uh, criminalises very uh, simple social pleasures. So, that's a campaign I think we can all get behind. But for now, stand by. It's time for the Corona Correction. So the Corona Correction this week is a really, really interesting one. And it's about the positive lockdown influence um, on uh, births. So basically, this is an article that Paul Cullen, uh, the health editor of the Irish Times, had, and um, it's uh, uh, some some information that's coming out of the University Maternity Hospital in Limerick that for the first four months of this year, um, there's been a really dramatic fall in preterm births and in um, low birth weight babies born in the hospital. It's a 73% reduction in the number of very low birth weight babies born in the hospital compared to the first four months of um, last year. And the researchers who are compiling this data believe that this is because there's reduced stress and healthier lifestyles because of uh, the COVID-19 restrictions. Um, So I just think that is an incredibly interesting um, Corona correction there. And I would like to meet the people who are having less stress from this Corona lockdown. <laughs> I am not that person. Well, maybe it's it's you know uh, not working perhaps, or uh, not having to run around the place, run around shops, run around relatives' houses, um, all that kind of thing. And so they're thinking that it's due to reduced work, uh, which is obviously reduced stress, reduced commuting, increased family support, reduced pollution, uh, better infection avoidance. Obviously, you know, we've all increased our our hand hygiene and all that kind of stuff. Um, Reduced exposure to tobacco and drugs and improved sleep and more exercise. Um, So that's an interesting one. How can we keep that going? Uh, you know, this goes back to the thing around let's keep the good bits of lockdown, the good lessons um, and hold on to them. And uh, another uh, aspect of this uh, dramatic period that we've gone through over the last few months is the subject of the podcast today. We're talking about um, 
the 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 kind of urgency of of salons and the beauty industry reopening and what that whole environment has done to our sense of self and uh how we engage with beauty standards that are changing, not just during the lockdown, but because of technology and because technology and the screen has become so dominant in recent months, uh, what impact that has had. And we have an amazing guest coming up right now to discuss all of those things. Right now, speculation is rife about whether or not hairdressers, barbers and beauty salons will have their opening date brought forward from the current date of the 20th of July to the new date of June 29th. The reopening date of the beauty industry has dominated the conversation in terms of which industries could open when, which just goes to show how important beauty is to Irish society. But what does our beauty obsession say about us as a nation? And has our time in lockdown changed our perception of beauty ideals and how we feel about ourselves Oh, natural. We're joined today by Heather Widdows, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Birmingham and co-lead of the Beauty Demands Project, an everyday looksism activist. She's also the author of Perfect Me. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Um, we'll get straight in um, because we've had glorious technical problems this morning. Um, but we, during the corona lockdown, We've kind of all been forced to change how we present ourselves. There's no hairdressers, barbers, beauty salons or cosmetic clinics open. So the majority of people have reverted to a more natural state. And the conversations I've been having with people are that people are enjoying the lack of pressure to conform to beauty ideals. Are are beauty ideals therefore a pressure that's been put on us by external sources? So we definitely feel the pressure to do beauty, but whether it's external or internal or a mixture of those things is kind of hard to say. So some people in lockdown, they've definitely been feeling that they can do less, but other people have been feeling that they need to do more, especially if they're suddenly finding themselves doing Zoom conferencing all day or Skype meetings and staring at their faces on a screen. So some have been feeling even more need to do more, while others may have felt the need to do less. And do you think because of the Zoom, like obviously if you're looking at yourself on a Zoom feet on a Zoom screen and there is the option to add the filters with it, that it corrects your skin tone. And obviously there's uh, there's the filters that we use every day in whether it be Instagram stories or whatever, that we're, we're, we're correcting our skin tone all the time. So is that leading to this bigger issue that we're, where beauty standards I suppose are transforming from what we actually look like to what we actually look like to be photo ready or screen ready or zoom ready or whatever it is and because we're social media is skewing how we actually look. Yeah so one part of why we have rising demands and more unrealistic demands is the visual and virtual culture that increasingly the kind of skin we want is a technical gaze Skin, you know, one that's you know got no pores or is, as you say, camera ready all the time. And this, of course, isn't human skin. This is a skin of HD culture or of um, Instagram filters. So nobody has that kind of perfect 
porous skin. And when you're in real human action, those things aren't flaws anyway. But when you look at yourself purely as an image, as a picture, then you start to notice the kind of flaws that we're told matter. So certainly when I was 18, I did not know that large pores were a flaw and my mother certainly didn't. But my daughter will. And if you look at any beauty creams, they promise to start doing things like removing dark circles, removing large pores, erasing wrinkles. And you get all this kind of sort of technical language like resurfacing. You know, how do you resurface skin? And I suppose that Instagram facing, which was a term coined by Gia Talentino in The New Yorker, um, has kind of given rise to like the Korean beauty obsession for glass skin, which is that resurfacing skin and using a lot of products that are like resurfacing uh, the like vitamin C and taking away um, the corrections and the, I was reading about the, um, the cosmetic surgeon who like before they start changing things, they take everything away. And I suppose, is that a case of um, a global beauty trend for flawless unmarked skin? Yes. That's so I, that's absolutely right. So I, I track in my book um, four features of the global beauty ideal. And one of the things that's so dominant is that we've never had a global beauty ideal before. So a global beauty ideal normally normalizes in a way that a local beauty ideal never could. So it changes things from being about beauty and adornment to being things about health and hygiene. So you suddenly have to engage in all kinds of practices that used to be beauty practices, but not to be beautiful, just to be normal. And then that becomes invisible. They become health and hygiene practices. So gradually the demands rise, but without us really noticing because we've normalized those. So um, the smooth skin of the Instagram face, that's one of the four features. The other one is thinness with curves firmness as we increasingly move to the naked body from the clothed body and then of course the final one is that one that we're all aware of that has been for a long time which is youth and what about hairlessness what is the journey that we've been on with that and the normalization of removing it and how that's kind of become expected I suppose yeah, so I love I love what's happened with body hair. It's kind of talk about it as the canary in the mine. It's a practice where you can see the shift over a very short amount of time from hair removal being definitely a beauty practice, not something that you had to do for health or hygiene reasons. So if you go back to the 1970s, you could certainly have body hair and it might even be sexy. And now we get to the point where women talk about body hair as if it's actually abnormal. They say things like, oh, I don't mind what women do with their bodies. Women can do whatever they want with their own bodies. But, you know, if I saw somebody at the swimming baths, ooh, I might just stand 10 feet away from them. You know, so there's a sense in which we've shifted from seeing body hair removal as simply about different styles of adornment to something that you absolutely absolutely have to do just to be normal. So even people who didn't used to remove their body hair, they'll often say things like, oh, well, if I'm going to a wedding or somewhere where I'm going to see other people, now I just remove it because I just don't want to have a conversation about my body hair. And there's all kinds of other practices where you see that tip from something being about adornment to something being um, about health and hygiene. So, you know, we're increasingly getting people talking about Botox as like teeth cleaning or hairbrushing and things like teeth straightening, um, which uh, are often not necessary for any health reason or teeth whitening that certainly isn't becoming seen as something that's about hygiene and normal and something that you have to do. 
And that's one of the key differences with previous beauty ideals compared to a global beauty ideal. So people often say to me things like, oh, well, it's not that bad what we do now. Think about what people used to do for beauty. So, And they often use examples, extreme examples like foot binding in China or corset wearing. So there's nothing as bad as that. But then you look at actually who did those practices, and it's always a relatively small subsection of society. So people who were very rich, for instance, and at no point could those women ever have believed that those practices were about health or hygiene or normality. They knew that they were always about adornment. So you might have believed if you were that Chinese aristocratic woman having her foot bound, that that tiny two inch lotus foot was perfect, was desirable, was beautiful. But you could never have believed it was normal or natural because most of the women around you did not have those lotus feet. You couldn't have farmed the fields or done any of your domestic duties with tiny feet. And in fact, the suffragettes pointed to their maids when they threw off their corsets to show that, in fact, it didn't mean that you couldn't be feminine. It would stop you having children and do all the other things. So there was never a case where we had this beauty ideal where suddenly things can become normal and then more demanding. And then we almost don't even notice. We kind of, it kind of happens slyly. And I talk about a greedy and stealthy beauty ideal. Heather, can I just ask something about um, the perceived correction against the technical gaze or the normalization of um artificiality, I suppose, in that there seems to be a kind of drive amongst, let's say, beauty influencers on Instagram towards, quote unquote, authenticity. Um, And then, you know, you occasionally see these little things of like, you know, the no makeup selfie, I suppose, would have been a a moment a good while ago. And then added to that, the lack of access to like salons, um, for example, during uh, lockdown, there's some kind of, you know, maybe an embrace of that. But I wonder about is the construction of authenticity in reaction to like a more false sense, just another kind of uh, construction as well? So I, I think it is. I think it's all a variation on a theme. So, you, you know, authenticity or clean eating or, you know, bare-faced selfies is a classic one. So people did bare-faced selfies and they raised tens of thousands of pounds for cancer in a matter of days precisely because it was kind of brave to put a bare-faced selfie out there. And when you look at lots of the things about, oh, let's be more natural or authentic or some of the campaigns like, you know, the um, – the January campaign, which I don't know if you know, remember women um, grew their body hair for a month. But nearly always these campaigns tackle one feature of the beauty ideal. You know, so you, they tackle the thinness so you can have big fat acceptance campaigns. But you'll often see that it's only that single feature. You know, and women are otherwise very much conforming, very beautiful women, often thin with curves, often very firm, certainly smooth and glamorous. The January campaigns, all that was shared, usually with people who otherwise conformed. So there's a sense in which even though they're sort of trying to break out of the ideal, they sort of reinforce it because it's still about the body, right? And it's still about doing bodies better. Uh, and that's part of the, the, the way that we are in, the, in a visual culture where our bodies are increasingly ourselves. We find it very hard to think differently about what ourselves might be. And again, that's another transforming change. We have never before had a culture where we read so much from the body, where we read our inner characters from our outer body 
and we talk about things like being good. So my, I'm a moral philosopher, so lots of my work is about the ethical edge to this ideal that somehow we've switched to thinking that we are actually good when we make our weight loss goals. And we talk about it constantly, like we're naughty when we eat that naughty piece of cake or when we let ourselves go or we're worth it, we deserve it. Right? These are fundamentally moral terms and they're not there by accident. We increasingly judge ourselves and others on how much we make the grade and I think some of the authenticity and the clean eating stuff is maybe another double whammy because it's not just about how you look it's about doing it right right you've got to get the right attitude to get the right clean eating or to get the right authenticity and in some ways it's aiming to be liberating and it's hearts in the right place but in other ways it can make you feel even more like you don't measure up because not only can't you get the look right but maybe you're doing it wrong as well yeah, and, so true. Uh, so yeah. Even though if you reject these new ideals, and even if you're conscious of it and you're you're deciding to have them as a rejection, that in itself is a choice. So that yeah. even becomes a moral statement. It does. And, and I and I had try and shift the debate completely. You know, we spent 30 years thinking that, you know, the way to challenge this is just to reject it. And then we just end up with women blaming other women. So if you do it, you're wrong. If you don't do it, you're wrong. And it's just utterly doesn't work at all. And it completely ignores just how much of what you do in beauty is conditioned by the context in which you come from. Um, and those are, I think, just really self-defeating and w- women criticising ways. So I've really tried to say, look, we shouldn't focus at all on what women do or don't do. It's a really demanding global beauty ideal out there. And if you do it, you know, you're doing it for all the reasons that make sense. And if you don't do it, well, you know, you're in a position where you, you're probably quite privileged and able not to do it. And what we should do is act much more collectively and try and change the culture. Right? It's too much to ask that individuals on their own try and reject what is an increasingly demanding beauty ideal. And that is really bound up with how we, who we think we are and how we present ourselves in this culture and that's a change that we really need to make. Um, finally, before we let you go, when asked 87% of girls how they look is more important uh, than what they can do or what they say, and that's pretty depressing. Do you think there's a way to change that in itself or how so do you do that? We have, I mean, we have to. If we keep going in this direction where we're ever more obsessed with how we look, the things that we won't do and the devastation that we'll have on um, our young women and men going forward will just be unbearable. So we have to change it. And I think where we start is, A, recognising how powerful this is. So when we tell our kids, oh, don't worry, it's what's on the inside that counts, right? They know that's not how they're treated. So the first thing we can do is start by taking it seriously. It's crept up on us and it's still too often treated like it's something that's trivial or individual. And we know from just how extensive body image anxiety is that it's really quite devastating. And then the other thing we can do is focus away from telling people what to do or not do or how to feel or not feel so that they constantly are in this spiral of blame and guilt and instead think about how we can change the culture. So the reason that we launched the Everyday Lookism campaign is it's just one small thing to try and change the culture. It's it's a recognition that when you say negative things about other people's bodies, they cut really deep, right? In a cult 
culture where our bodies are ourselves. When we body shame, we people shame. And then we add to the pressure and we add to the blame because you're not only feeling internally worried that you don't measure up, but you're scared that people are going to comment on you. So one thing that we can do is say that that kind of discrimination is a serious discrimination and we can learn to name it. So before we named sexism, we knew that we didn't like it. We were uncomfortable when those sexist comments or that pinch on the bum came our way. But it was harder to call it out. If we name lookism and we can say body shaming is always people shaming, it's never okay, let's share those stories to call it out, then that will do one small thing to reduce some of the negative toxic culture that, that utterly silences so many women and girls, stops them speaking up in class, makes them afraid to do exercise, all kinds of things that they could be doing if they weren't worrying about how they look. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was really uh, brilliant. And we'll uh, look forward to talking to you again. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And now our fave bits. My fave bit is, is one fave bit this week. And it is, um, I know there's been a big trend and growth in wholesome content and people just love, you know, all these things, cottage core and all these kind of things young people are re-engaging with, I believe. I believe the young people want to all live in the countryside. Um, but my fave bit this week intersects with that somewhat. Uh, it is the big flower fight on Netflix. Um, flowers, I think, have really come into their own during lockdown. The simple pleasures. This is basically Bake Off, but with flowers. Um, there are some melters on it. But for the most part, and I do actually, you know, I was watching it last night again. I'm like, God, there's a lot of waste here, you know, gluing flowers to expensive flowers to massive uh, pieces of plywood and stuff. So if you can park your concerns over the expense and waste and the broader, you know, flower industry, which I'm sure is as bad as every other fucking terrible industry we've managed to create in this world. It is quite wholesome if you can park those ethical concerns. And uh, I'm really enjoying it. And as somebody, I haven't been able to watch any film really during lockdown. My attention span uh, hasn't allowed for it. I don't know what's wrong. I do occasionally fall into watching reality TV of this nature and I've really been enjoying it. So if you need... And the Kardashians, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 Andrea, no. Uh, so the big flower fight as a 92-year-old uh, Cornwall woman like myself. Uh, that's where my interests lie. Baking um, and flowers. So watch that if you need a break. What are your fave bits this week, Andrea? <laughs> my fave bits are so random. So I'm just coming back to culture a little bit now after the trauma. Uh, but my favourite bit, without a shadow of a date this week, has been the mock-up situations on Clareburn Live. You love these. You love these <laughs> oh, so much. Oh, God, they're just too much. This week's one... <laughs> was mocking up shops and it's just whoever is dressing this set oh it's like I, and then I started going back to previous ones and compiling them all together in whatsapp groups it's just the greatest thing on earth and especially when Claire acts they were doing like a role play of how to order a drink in a bar um I think it was last week <laughs> so good I just love it it's so kitsch it's so gas it's just it's just what we read <laughs> I love it um 
Also this week, I love watching um, Hannah McSorley. She is a t- girl in Tyrone who is also known as the Tadpole Queen. Love her, uh, love. Yeah, she is bringing a lot of frogs to Tyrone, but she's now being approached by an American influencer agency. They want her, like, she's big now. Go on, Hannah. I love that. Go on, nature. Um, and basically what she's doing is she's breeding loads of tadpoles and she's doing one video of them a day. And she's like, I don't get why people are so mad for it. Like, I'm just do- breeding tadpoles. Like, she's a gas bitch. Love her. Um, and then finally... I've had a resurgence in one of my one of the greatest programs that's ever existed, um, and as uh, it's just so classic, and it feels like it could have been made yesterday. Um, it is AbFab. The reason my life took the course it did is because of this program. When I was in school, I wanted to be a psychologist, and I was studying away, and I didn't get the points or something. And then I started watching AbFab, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's it." I want to work in PR. If that's the life that they live, I am in. So then I went and studied PR because I wanted to be a Dina Monsoon. <laughs> and I think it's really shaped my whole life, the way I approach everything. It's just the greatest program ever going. And I am, well, not I am. I have a lot of similarities to Adina Monsoon and my sister has a lot, and as I'm living with her now, to Safi. So I'm literally going around going, oh God, oh God, I just, I, whatever. And Michelle's going, can you not do that? Can you just eat some like chicken and veg or whatever? Anyway, love it. Go watch it. It's fab. It's on uh, Netflix. Braille. Oh, it is. Is it on Netflix? Ab fab. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did not know. Interesting. Okay. So Andrea, what's the deal? The deal is keep your distance, keep washing your hands, keep your sneezes contained and keep a mask on in supermarkets and anywhere as we're coming out of our little cocoon or not cocoon, that's the wrong word, but whatever, as we're coming out and doing more and going more places, if you're in uh, a place where you can't um, keep a distance of a meter, Put a, keep your mask on. And the more we normalize wearing masks more, the like less we will be faced with um, fades coming into having another corona outbreak. So just put your mask on as much as you can and don't be scarlet about it. And let's just normalize this and keep make it like a cool accessory. There's so many fab ones out there. If you get a gorgeous fashion one, you like look forward to wearing it. I'll tell you. And what's the tuna chicken roll this week? I'm excited. The tuna chicken roll is a kind of a flex, but it's one of those songs that, don't you know, if it pl- is played in a cl- it's pl- club in a remix, or I went to see a Nilo gig and he uh, did his version of it. And it just, no matter what, where you are or who's playing it or what version of it it is, it just always makes you feel like having a bop and feeling very positive and just like really, really happy. And that song is Paul Simon, You Can Call Me Al. Curveball. I'm into it. It's such a song. I've been Una. I've been Andrea. That was You Are Beautiful No Matter What They Say. Pretty much. And we are United, United Ireland. Ireland. Yes. <laughs> Treasure Hunt is on the way. We love you. A man walks down the street. He says, why am I soft in the middle why am I soft in the middle of the rest of my life is so hard? I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger, dogs in the moonlight. Far away.
beer, Nelly, beer, Nelly, get these mutts away from me, you know. I don't find this stuff amusing anymore. If you be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. I can call you Betty, Betty, when you call me. Why am I short of attention? Got a short little span of attention And oh, my nights are so long Where's my wife and family? What if I die here? Who'll be my role model? Now that my role model is gone, gone Be duck back down the alley with some Roly-poly little bat-faced girl All along, along There were incidents and accidents There were hints and allegations If you'll be my bodyguard around. 